Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters with Mark Inc. Ministries. You are listening to a resource developed by our ministry as part of our help and hope for hurting people. We are so grateful that uh, this resource is sitting in your hands because today we are dealing with a very sensitive subject, and that is sexual addiction. And we are going to be talking specifically about uh, applications of of certain principles uh, that apply to men in particular. Uh, our guest today is uh, Jonathan Daugherty. He is the founder of Be Broken Ministries and the founder of Gateway to Freedom. It's a workshop for men. Uh, Jonathan also hosts a weekly radio program called Pure, Pure Sex Radio. And uh, frankly, he is in demand nationally as a speaker on sexual purity and in particular on men's issues. Uh, Jonathan, welcome. It's so good to have you. Thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, this book mm-hmm. is entitled Thank you. I appreciate having me here. It's Secrets, a true story of addiction, infidelity, and second chances. And Jonathan, I read your book and it's, it's just outstanding. You did a great job of transparency. As I'm reading the book, I'm realizing how vulnerable and transparent, uh, you were in the book, and so thank you for the resource, and thank you for your willingness to come on and talk to us here at Mark Inc. Ministries. Mm-hmm. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your family, but before we do that, uh, I'd like to pray. Let's, If we could pray together, I'd appreciate that. Absolutely. Father, I thank you so much for Jonathan. I thank you for his willingness to speak to this topic, and thank you in particular for Be Broken Ministries and for what you have called him to and called his wife to. And I pray that you'll guide our discussion. And whoever might be listening to this, I pray that you would speak to their heart, speak to all of our hearts, biblical truth. Lord, we want to know what you have to say and what you have directed us to be and to do. So bless this discussion in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Jonathan, about your family. Well, so I've been married for 22 years and uh, to the same woman. (laughs) And we have three children. Uh, They're all teenagers. So they range in age from 13 to 16. And so we are in that wonderful tunnel of teenage chaos and and we're loving it. Um, It's something that, to be honest with you, with my story, uh, I never would have dreamed could have happened or should have happened even so it's just a testament to the grace of God. And, and uh, so, yeah, we're, we're really enjoying life right now. You know, everybody talks about uh, all these different seasons of life. You know, they talk about the terrible twos and then they talk about, you know, the preteen and they talk about teenage years. And in some ways we're kind of just keeping our mouth shut as we go through this because we're going, this is really, we're loving it. You know, we're really enjoying it. And I have to give my wife a ton of credit in that because, you know, the the healing that we went through in our marriage and then the things that we sort of learned through that, she has been such a, a voice and picture of grace and forgiveness and how do you deal with difficult situations and difficult people. So I'm I'm thankful that my children have her as a as a model for that. And uh, we're grateful too for the things that we did learn through those seasons so that we have something hopefully of value to invest into our kids about how to have honest conversations about difficult topics without feeling like we've got to carry a bunch of shame regarding those conversations. Why did you decide to write the book Secrets and why did you name it Secrets? 
Great question. I was called into ministry full-time in 2003. And really, you know, a lot of times when people hear that term, you know, called into ministry, they're like, what happened? Did you have some kind of, you know, lightning bolt strike you or something? And the reality is, is it was more of like a journey that God was taking me on to where finally the the quote unquote calling that I heard from him was simply three words, tell your story. Man, I came out of so much brokenness in my own history regarding sexual addiction and pornography and other kinds of sinful behaviors that I had a lot to unpack myself in terms of recovery and, and how to build a whole new foundation for living a life of integrity. And so I, all God wanted me to do was take all of that mess that he had uh, transformed and then just share it with others. And so a few years into this full-time ministry, God was also then prompting me, let's let's put that into a written form. And the, the only thing that could come into my mind as far as the only appropriate title was secrets. And the reason that it, that was the case is because the thing that marked my progression into an addictive lifestyle was secrecy. It was the fact that over and over and over again, as I was engaging with these various temptations and opportunities and decisions to keep going further and further into the dark, so to speak, the way I kept going further down that path was by hiding, by continuing to lie, by deceiving, by learning how to essentially live a double life. And so the reason I named it Secrets was because that's really when you get, when you sort of uncover all the layers, it's that issue of deception, both self-deception as well as deceiving others that has to be dealt with, that has to come into the light if anything's really going to change of any substance. Your subtitle is A True Story of Addiction, Infidelity, and Second Chances. You use the word addiction. Let me ask you this question. How, how does one know that he is sexually addicted? That's a great question. I, you know, I, in, in, in sort of the church circles or religious circles, I, I try to let people know that I, I sort of use the term addiction and stronghold in somewhat of an interchangeable sense. I mean, they, they can have a little bit of distinction, but I just want people to know that I, I don't necessarily adhere to all of the secular ideas of, behind the concept of addiction. I think of it more in terms of a stronghold that there are things that can happen to us and then things that we embrace ourselves as we go through life that over time become a stronghold, something that begins to control our lives. Some of it, again, by virtue of it being put into our lives. Um, nobody, no child ever gets through childhood without somebody else's brokenness being dumped into their life in some way. So that may be a dad introducing a son to pornography or a friend you know, showing somebody something or any number of ways that that kind of brokenness gets dumped into our lives. But then at some point along the way, we pick it up and start to run with it. So I look at it at addiction more of like it's it's a it's a matter of layers being developed over time to where eventually then kind of your heart and your mind get encased in all of these layers of lies, lies about your worth, lies about your your purpose. And then certainly when you when you talk about it in terms of sexuality, lies about your sexuality, lies about what God's design and purpose is for sexuality. But then to answer the question of what is an addiction, I really think it's when things have, when all those layers have come upon you to where there's a compulsivity to the acting out. In other words, it's an out of control feeling. If I can describe it this way, I would, in the 
height of my addiction, I would wake up in the mornings and it was like I couldn't not pursue acting out in some way that day. It's as if I might have had all the great intentions in the world of, hey, I don't want to look at pornography or I don't want to go solicit a prostitute or whatever else. I can have all these great intentions. And by the end of the day, I would have failed. I, I failed. And so one of the key phrases that we hear people say all the time that is almost a certain indication that a person has an addiction is when they say to somebody glibly, well, I could stop anytime I want to. That is almost certainly an indication that a person is addicted because if they say they can stop and yet they continue to go down that path and keep acting in those ways, that's that self-deception that is so um, damaging because it, it's saying I can do something that in reality I can't. I'm proving through my behavior that I can't actually stop this. Jonathan, let me ask you to uh, take us on your own personal journey into sexual addiction. When did it start? How did it uh, manifest itself? When did it end? Yeah, so when I was 12 years old, I was exposed to pornography, and I had no idea what to do with that. I had no way of knowing how to process that. Uh, I grew up in a, a really solid Christian home. I mean, I, my, my parents loved me. They loved each other. We always had, you know, the foundation of our home was the Word of God, and so I I had this rich heritage from my family of a strong foundation in God's word and in his truth. But even so, that doesn't prevent, that didn't prevent me from being exposed to something that I didn't know how to handle, pornography. And so that started this divergence into kind of building what I call a double life, where I didn't know how to handle that first exposure to pornography. So I tucked it away as a little secret. I didn't tell anybody about that. And that's really out of which the whole addiction eventually grew is because little by little, I'd come across other information. Then I'd start seeking out some material and then I'd start dabbling in things like fantasy and masturbation and other kinds of behaviors. And again, like I said before, it's just little layers It's at the moment, especially as a teenager, it doesn't just seem like this is going to be something that will debilitate my life. In fact, if anything, it feels like, man, when you, when I went into puberty and all these changes are happening with my body, some of it even felt natural. Like, hey, this is just exploration. This is what I'm supposed to do, right? Now that I have these abilities with my body, then I need to actually act on them. And so, again, little by little, these things were happening. When I got into college, that's where I crossed what we might call the flesh barrier, because up to that point, it had just been pornography. So just sort of me with me. But then in college, I got involved with other individuals sexually. And I like to, at this point, tell people that one of the deceptions of lust is that it will tell you on the front end that if you give it what it wants, so when the temptation is alluring to you and saying, come do this, it's telling you that that will satisfy, but on the back end, it never does. And so lust is never actually satisfied. And and it will always demand that at some point, you push yourself past lines that you said you'd never cross. Um, I had made a, a real commitment when I was in high school that I wanted to be, as God said, I wanted to protect my sexuality. I wanted to be a virgin when I, when I was married because I believed that God had made sexual expression for the covenant bond between a man and a woman in marriage. And uh, when I got in college, see, I'd built up a lot of secrets by that time. And, and so my lust was really who is sort of driving the bus at that point. 
And don't think for a minute that our lust cares anything about our worth, our value, our integrity. It's going to continually seek to steer us away from God's best. And so that's why I crossed that flesh barrier. I was listening to lust. I was feeding it. Eventually, I got married. And I really thought this is the cure. You know, a lot of single guys especially think, man, marriage is going to cure my problem with porn and with lust. And for a very short season, it seemed to do that because, man, during sort of the honeymoon phase, first five or six weeks of our marriage, I I had no problem at all. I, I felt great. I was like, this is awesome. Guys just need to go get married and they'll never have a problem with lust again. Of course, if anybody's listening to this that's married, they're probably rolling their eyes going, yeah, that's a pipe dream, you know, that that's going to happen. Because eventually what happens is real life sets in and the real stressors of a relationship with somebody who's completely different from you. Even if we've got a lot of similar interests and, you know, we call each other our best friend as a husband and wife. The reality is, is right down to our chromosomes, we're different. Men and women are different. And I actually believe that's God's design to put these different beings together and call that good because it's through that union that we will discover how much we need to depend upon the Lord. And so, uh, but I was so ignorant and so unwise at that point in my life, I was still very self-centered in my belief system, especially regarding my sexuality. I've been training my sexuality to be have a taking mentality. That's really what pornography teaches. It teaches us to take and consume rather than how I believe God's designed our sexuality, which is in that wonderful covenant bond of marriage. It's an expression of giving of ourselves to one another to express that covenant bond of love. But that was a, I was a long way off from that in my first days of being married. And eventually, when all the stressors of life came crashing down in our marriage, I went back to my escape mechanism, which was pornography and other kinds of behaviors. And for the first first four years of our marriage, I just went uh, just super fast down the hill into a lot of uh, my addictive behaviors. Uh, it was pornography, prostitution, other kinds of um, acting out. So it was it was kind of the gamut, and this was producing a misery in my wife and in, in our marriage because I was still doing all this secretly, which is somewhat of a, a misnomer because even when you're doing these things secretly, it's not as if nobody knows that something's wrong. Um, my wife knew something was wrong, even though she didn't know the specifics about it. And it was in 1999 that everything came out into the light and it was, you know, everything blew up and that was the beginning of my recovery. My wife left me. Um, she said she didn't want to see me or speak to me ever again. It was just, I had crushed her heart and I was left alone to have to make the decision of my life. Am I going to keep going in the direction that I was going, which was certain to lead to death because I'd already been suicidal uh, at that point in my life? Or was I going to return to this wonderful God who saved me when I was six years old and see what it was like to live according to his standards. So really 1999 was the marker of just the beginning of the rest of my life. So what happened after your wife left you? You came to the realization that you you needed help. What kind of help did you get? So I had uh, a few months before my wife left, almost as a way to try to appease her, I went to see a counselor. And, and it did not go well that first session. Basically, 
I went into the counselor's office and I was not ready. My heart was, I wasn't ready for recovery, but I was doing this because it was, hey, maybe this will get my wife and some other people off my back about this. And I went in, I sat down, I told the counselor, listen, I don't want to be here. So whatever. And he looked at me and he said, that's fine. I get paid for the hour anyway. So he, we sat there and had a staring contest for 50 minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and so fast forward to when my wife did leave, he's the first person that came into my mind. I'm like, that guy, I bet I can trust him. He's He's got some character. He's strong. For a guy to sit with a jerk like I was and be willing to be in the same room with me instead of just dismissing me and kicking me to the curb and saying, you know, who's my next client? I thought, I probably should see what this guy has to say. And so I started a counseling relationship with this man. And then he he steered me into a support group that was incredibly beneficial. And from there, I just started devouring books and getting back into the Word of God and and just really seeking to develop relationships with men who are going to help me learn how to be a man. And then from there, that's just kind of where everything took off from that point. Well, it's interesting. I saw you and your wife in a discussion, an interview on ABC. And mm -hmm. one of the things, one of the questions that she was asked was, what what was your reaction when you realized that your husband was living this secret life? And she described her reaction this way. She said, I prayed that I would die in my sleep. What happened next? I'm sure recovery mm -hmm. was very painful. You've even mentioned the fact that on a couple of occasions or three occasions, you contemplated suicide. Yeah. So to kind of unpack all of that for you, uh, first of all, just even my own uh, suicidal struggle. I had, uh, I'd gotten into a deep depression. It's not uncommon for those who get entangled in a sexual addiction or really an addiction of any kind that they become depressed. If you think about it, really any addiction is an exercise in futility. Every, every single acting out, all the behaviors that progress are ultimately lead to emptiness. They don't actually fulfill the, again, like that lust, it promises on the front end that it's going to be satisfying on the back end. It, it isn't. And so I was depressed, suicidal, just thinking it would be better to just end my own life. Thankfully, there were just little, little tiny enough whisperings in my mind when I was holding a gun up against my head at the end of my, my bed one day that I didn't pull the trigger. And, and the whisper was simply one word. It was maybe. And I, at the time, it's like it didn't make sense, but I, I think what it was is, well, maybe maybe this isn't the right answer. Maybe something can change. Maybe there is something better. And so I'm grateful, obviously, that I didn't finish my life in that way. But my wife, when all of this came out and she left, she did the right thing by actually leaving because she, I mean, I I had crossed every boundary. I had wounded her in every way. She needed She needed to get to some safety to be able to have her heart heal and just determine whatever was going to be next for her. At that point, when she left, it was not about our relationship at that point. It was about a, a bomb had gone off in our marriage. I had set off an explosion in our relationship and she needed some time to heal. And that healing was at that point was simply not going to be effective if she was around me. And so she went to her, her parents' house and when she talks about kind of that season of our separation, she will talk about how she was so amazed every day that the sun would come up because she's like, this can't be, how does life continue to go on? How, how does the world continue to spin on its axis? I mean, to her, everything had stopped. 
And that's why she really prayed that she would die in her sleep because she knew that she wouldn't ever kill herself by her own hand, but she sure cried out to God to end the pain in her life by him taking her away. And she really learned through that process of how tender, how really tender God is to his hurting children and just showed her showed her how much he could identify and truly empathize with her that he even more than she could ever understand could could know what betrayal feels like could know what to be hurt by those you love the most feels like and so that was critical to her healing process was just for a season to allow the empathy of the Lord to really speak to her heart while she was just completely crushed. You know, on uh, page 14 of your book, uh, you write this, you say, it didn't take long for me to become a divided person. That seems to be a theme that goes throughout the book. You refer to yourself as a divided person. The secret Mm -hmm. split me right down the middle. I was not who I appeared to be. I had to lie to keep the secret alive. I had to create a separate, hidden me in order not to appear as if anything had changed or was changing. And then you say this, I became skillful at masking true emotions and replacing them with other fake emotions that might appease those who were asking questions about how I looked or whether I was distracted or had a disease, people who asked me if I was okay. Can you elaborate on that concept of being a divided person to keep the secret mm-hmm. alive? Absolutely. This is something we we touch on in our ministry all the time because, again, it gets down to that that secrecy, right, the, the deception. And one of the things that we talk about in that is that really what, what happened in my life and happens in the life of anybody that goes down this trail is that we are presented with opportunities every day to tell the truth or to, to lie, both to ourselves and to others. And and so that's really what the opportunities come down to. Every day, we've got multiple opportunities to tell the truth or to lie. And the more we lie, it is creating a divided person. What I mean by that is at some point we realize in order for me to ensure that nobody else can really get get into the real me to get to really see the things that I'm trying to hide. I have to build an image that I project to them. I have to build this facade, this mask, we might call it. I have to build this persona that I can then show them so that they think everything's all right. While on the inside, I'm the, I'm the one that knows what's really going on. And that's what I mean by the divided person. And, and I think to some degree, this is a struggle for every human being. It's not just about addiction. I think all of us have this struggle of just wanting to make sure that people see us the way we want them to see us or the way they want to see us. And and we struggle with that. And one of the things I try to touch on in the book is just how detrimental that is to not only healthy personal growth and just personal wholeness, but it's incredibly detrimental to healthy relationships. And I'm not talking just about marriage. I'm talking about any kind of friendship or anything like that. It's it's detrimental when we start to present ourselves to others as something that we are not. That doesn't mean, however, that I have the same level of transparency with every single person that I come in contact with. I always want to be very careful to let people know that. It, you know, it's not like you go into your grocery store and you just start, you know, vomiting your confession all over the, you know, cashier. <laughs> it's like there are there are levels of transparency that we have, but the idea is 
am I being authentic? Am I being present with who I'm in the room with right now to whatever level of transparency that I need to be? Not am I trying to wow them or present myself as something other than I'm not. That's really what the dividedness is about. Hmm. It's about image building versus am I just going to be authentic and real? Our ministry is located in the heart of Philadelphia Eagles, Philadelphia Phillies, Philadelphia Flyers country. And there's an all sports radio station that kind of has a corner on all sports in the city of Philadelphia. It's a blue collar town. It's a, uh, a union town, a town that prides itself on men being men. And I heard a program the other day in which they were really blasting Christians because the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles is a professing Christian, Carson Wentz, and he's made his testimony very public. And that discussion began to degenerate into the sexuality of a man. And their view, which I have found to be accurate, reflecting even what some Christian men believe, their view was, why are you guys making, you Christians, making so much out of sex? What's the big deal if a, if a man picks up uh, porn? And, and they began to really uh, lambast Christians for being so prudish, that this problem is something that your religion has created. This is not a problem that most men view as a problem. Uh, most women are accepting of the fact that their husbands are going to look at porn. And I was listening to that conversation as I was thinking about the conversation I'm going to have with you. And I thought, I'm going to ask him this. Are you making too mm -hmm. much? Are you making too much out of this? Uh, I mean, after all, they argued, we are sexual creatures. What is wrong with porn? What is wrong with masturbation? Why, why are you Christians so hot on that topic? How would you respond to them? Well, the first thing I would say is that, you know, cultural norms are not synonymous with what is true and what is best. So just because something is a cultural norm, it doesn't necessarily automatically mean, well, that and therefore that makes it good. That makes it right. The first thing that popped into my head is, you know, because a lot of this boils down again to the, the difference between truth as we understand it from our creator and then the way we have distorted that truth through the, the lies of sin. And so the first thing that popped into my head was the scripture that says, let God be true and all, man, all men a liar. Hmm. So the idea is, we're yes, the culture is on a trajectory where it's sort of like, hey, it's, you know, it's a sexual free-for-all, whatever you want to do. And we've even seen that. I mean, when, when you look at the legislation, the direction that it's going, when essentially we've said marriage is no longer what the definition of marriage is, and essentially it's all about consenting adults and and so therefore what that's going to open up is pandora's box of well now it's how how many is is can you have in a partnership and and what about then uh teenagers you know let's say if i'm just in love to consenting it's going to get crazy and so the issue is when you're talking about pornography and sometimes people see it as sort of like such a minimal it's not a big deal i mean Okay, let's talk about the real serious stuff of like trafficking or sexual abuse. And yeah, we get that. But we pornography, I mean, come on, everybody's doing it. It's sort of a punchline in our culture. And sometimes I think of that in terms of, of how we often talk about a slippery slope. And we, we use that phrase in a lot of other ways when we talk about drugs or when we talk about certain violent 
you know, gang type behavior. And, and what's the slippery slope? What was the thing that got that person on that slippery slope towards what maybe everybody agrees is a more dangerous, you know, behavior, dangerous environment. And when I look at pornography, I'm saying it's almost like the, the difference between asking the question, well, do you want a little bit of cancer or do you want a lot of cancer? <laughs> it's like, does it matter? It's going to kill you. It, it doesn't matter if you have a little bit of cancer or a lot of cancer. Both are trying to destroy your health, destroy your life. So to me, it's not on the one hand, we've got to look at it in the context of truth and say, listen, you can talk about cultural norms and that everybody's doing it and that whole mentality, but that doesn't make it true or right to be doing. And then on the other hand is just saying, can we at least have a conversation about the reality of slippery slopes? And I'll tell you this right now, I have never met a single man, not one that has come to our ministry with a full-blown sexual addiction that's destroying his marriage, destroying his life, causing depression, that it did not involve pornography at some point along that journey. Mm. So that's a common denominator to even the worst cases that we see in our ministry. Also, there was a study many, many years ago that was done regarding uh, death row inmates, those who are on death row for violent crimes. And I think it was in the range of like 97 or 98% of them actually admitted to there being a connection between their use of pornography and the crimes they committed. So if we want to talk about cultural norms and everybody's saying, well, would we agree to a large extent, at least a majority, that when somebody has committed the kind of crimes that put a person on death row, that those are probably things that need to be punished or need to be dealt with, and they're absolutely wrong. I would say that we'd still get a majority of people that would say yes. And when then those same criminals are saying, there's almost a 100% connection between the crimes I committed and pornography, can we still then say, you know, pornography, not a big deal. It's a punchline. It's a joke. I don't think we have that liberty. You are head of an organization called Be Broken Ministries. And I am assuming that that means that you you have regular and consistent contact with men who are coming believing that they are sexually addicted. Mm -hmm. What are you finding that pornography leads to? In other words, what are the ramifications of a man who uh, consistently views porn? What mm -hmm. does it What does it do to affect his life, his marriage, his children? You're saying also it's a slippery slope into into more intense uh, addictions. Speak on that topic a little bit. What what can we expect from a man who is casually or consistently viewing pornography? What's going to happen yeah. next for him? The most fundamental thing that we see as the common denominator among every single guy that has developed a full-blown sexual addiction is the same central paradigm to that addiction. And the paradigm is simply this. It's it's him in the center and everything else in his life revolving around him. So what it does, it creates this completely self-focused paradigm. And, and now we can see that in a lot of different ways in life, we can get self-focused, but a hundred percent across the board, we see this in sexually addicted men that, and then what that does is it translates into how they even see sexuality uh, in themselves and in others, they be, they creates a consumer mindset towards uh, sexuality. So, in other words, uh, this man 
could be walking through a grocery store, and if he sees an attractive woman, he has been trained through pornography to have a consumption mindset towards that woman. Uh, that it's not about we are male and female created in the image of God, and there's intrinsic value and worth there, and all of that beauty is meant to be pointed back towards our Creator. No, it's about I want to capture an image of that woman and use my you know God-given imagination to direct all of those thoughts towards me. And so it's, it, it just creates this self-absorbed mentality. The other thing that I think it does is it often leads men to be very, then be very controlling. And this could be, this could be across all af- aspects of their, their lives. I'm not just saying sexually. I'm saying controlling in, in the sense that they become very manipulative because the, the way pornography trains us is everything about porn is getting what you want. That's really the message of pornography. Hey, we can just flavor it to however you want. You like this? You like that? Yeah, we can give you this. We can give you that. So again, it's that consumer mentality. So then if, if a guy has that much control in pornography, he just extrapolates that out and expects I should have that much control in every area of my life. So when, as life typically does, it falls apart or things don't go as expected, this creates a lot of uh, irritation. And so that's another issue that we see in virtually every single man who's developed a sexual addiction is an underlying anger problem. So you have self-absorption, you have control, and you have anger. These are not the ingredients for healthy manhood or healthy relationships, but those are the consistent things that we see over and over again that porn essentially, if I can put it in these terms, is training a man to become is he's training him to be completely self-focused. He's training him to be controlling and he's training him to be angry. And so those are in my, I mean, I think even most people would say those aren't the kind of outcomes that we would like to have in our lives. We would probably like just the opposite. How do we know as men, if we are sexually addicted? The way I like to break this down is the difference between maybe sexual addiction and a stronghold and just the reality that we're all sexually broken because the, the last thing I want to do is I don't want to, I, I really hate to create sort of an us and them kind of mentality because that usually will keep the, the ones who need the most help even further in the dark because they'll be like, I'm not like them or whatever. And so I, I like to start first by saying we have to acknowledge that every single one of us is sexually broken. And what I mean by that is not, not a single one of us has been unaffected by sexual sin in the world. Either somebody else's sin and brokenness got dumped in our lives and we got hurt, we got wounded somehow, or we've picked up things like pornography or we've done certain things to other people. And so the reality is we have to acknowledge we're all sexually broken or sexually imperfect, if you want to put it that way. And out of that, then we can start to say, hey, to what degree are you feeling like you have become either bound in that brokenness or you're, you know, you're being consumed by it? And then we can start talking about kind of the addiction aspect. And some of the things I mentioned there about men, are you, do you, do you find yourself completely having a consumer mentality towards sexuality? Like, is it, is it all about taking, taking, taking? Um, what about control? Are you trying to manipulate outcomes in your life and maybe even, you know, sexually? And then, and then also starting to tap into your emotional self. Are you seeing a lot of anger and irritability and frustration and fear and those types of things? Some of those can be indicators. I'm not saying all of those are like an ironclad test. And by the way, there are just some assessment tests out there. I mean, you can, you know, Google like sex addiction test and you can find some good tests out there. Hmm. But I really, I like to couch the whole conversation more 
in the commonality that we have that we're all broken. And therefore, we could all use to improve in terms of our integrity and emotional selves so that we are not crippled by our sexual brokenness. Hmm. Let's assume just for a moment that a man is willing to conclude that he has a sexual addiction. Now, I know you uh, are the head of Be Broken Ministries. What would you what would you at Be Broken Ministries tell this man to do once he has discovered or understands that he has a sexual addiction? What steps should he take? Well, if somebody comes to me and says, listen, I, you know, um, I hear you help people that are, you know, struggling with sexual brokenness and sexual addictions and things like that. And I think I need some help. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to say, give me a high five. Hmm. And they're going to wonder that I'm, they're going to think I'm out of my mind because they're like, that's the last thing I would think is to give you a high five for admitting that I got a sexual addiction. But that is the critical, essential first step is to actually speak that out to somebody, to bring it out of the darkness of secrecy and hiddenness and lies and actually then bring it into the light. We're just just exposing it is a huge deal just to be able to admit I don't have it all together. I've been struggling to whether or not they admit it in terms of addiction language, like, hey, I've got a stronghold or I'm compulsive or it, that doesn't matter. The fact that somebody's saying, I need help, that's a huge moment to celebrate. And I think too many times we, we so quickly move a person along to all these, you know, myriad of behavioral modification techniques that we forget to just take a pause and, and celebrate what I call a grace moment. That's the grace of God bringing you out into the light. You, you don't realize how important this is to be able to just admit that you need help. That is so critical. And then we can start talking about things like, all right, let's get you into a safe environment where you can unpack your story so we can start to dig into some of the wounds and the lies and the and, and all of that. And then we're going to recommend things like a support group. We're going to recommend counseling, sometimes depending on the degree and, and just the help they need. Maybe they need an intensive. Maybe they need some live-in help, just different things like um, like that. But the key is bringing it into the light, and we want to celebrate that first moment and then bringing it into the light. Isn't he taking a major risk by doing that? Uh, sure. Is it making, making yourself that vulnerable that you step out and say, hey, I need help. I've got a sexual addiction, or maybe he wouldn't use those words. But mm-hmm. is how would you encourage a man to actually take that first step and say, I need help. Well, I think of it this way. You, you, I like the, the language you use there, taking a risk. We've got to blow up this idea that recovery is without risk. Um, you know, I think sometimes people feel like that initial moment is the risk that you've got to take, just confessing it, right? That's a huge risk. I'm going to tell you, you got lots more of risky decisions to make healthy risks, but there's still risks. You know, I've, you got to confess this to your wife. What? Okay. You need to talk about this with another group of men. What? You got to go see a counselor. Those are all risks in and of themselves, but they're moving you in the right direction. And I like to, I like to help people think of this in the terms of, in, in the context of pain. There are two types of pain generally. There is pain that is destructive, and then there's pain that is healing. The problem is, is that many times the way that pain manifests in our, in our sensation is they feel very similar. So if I, if I have somebody stab me in the gut with a knife, 
I'm feeling pain instantly. And if nothing is done about that wound that's just been inflicted into my stomach, I will die. That's a pain that's leading to destruction. It's leading to death. If, however, after being stabbed in the stomach, somebody comes up who knows what they're doing and they stop the bleeding and they take me and they rush me to the hospital and they get me in surgery and, you know, a surgeon does an incredible job of patching up the wound, I'm not done with pain. I've still got pain of recovery. And in some ways, that pain, even in that recovery, will some at some moments feel very much like when I got stabbed in the first place. And so we have to be able to understand that even recovery, even moving towards health and, and wellness, there's a pain involved in it, but it's pain moving the right direction. And so I would tell anybody out there, it's like, okay, do you want to do you want to continue in the darkness of your secrecies towards a pain that leads to death, a pain that leads to destruction? Or are you willing to take the risk that, yeah, in and of itself, there's a pain in that, but a risk that leads you to the pain of healing rather than the pain of destruction? You know, it's interesting to me to, as I listened to you talking, as I, as I uh, read your book, you, you said this, you said, I wish I could say that I have it all together and that I have completely figured life out. I haven't. I am just like you. I am up, down, and sideways often all in the same day or hour. This is the nature of life. How do we know when a man is talking about recovery, when he is when he is in recovery, when he's getting the counseling that he needs, when he's interfacing with ministries like yours, reading material like you've published and other great books out there that speak to the topic, how do we know that He's not going to go home, get back up into his bedroom with his computer or his cell phone and just go right back to what the way things were. Yeah. Well, we don't. And that's just it. What I like to tell people is that we have made recovery far narrower than what it is intended to be. And what I mean by that is we have we have relegated recovery to simply and merely behavior modification, which essentially we're going to say, okay, look at this guy over here. He's looking at pornography. So what we need to do, recovery is about getting him to this stage over here where he's not looking at pornography. And I have to tell you, while there is a type of value to that process, that is weak. That's not what we teach recovery is about. Recovery ultimately boils down to relationships. First with God then with your your close loved ones, and then with some friends. It, it's about relationship, because if you look at every single person who's developed any kind of sexual addiction, or really any addiction of any kind, for that matter, it is a, it is a journey of disconnecting from relationship. Everything about addiction leads a person away from the healthy intimacy that's necessary, that really what we're created for by God. We are created for relationship with him, and we're also created for relationship with one another. And so addiction destroys that. It breaks that. It, it severs that, mainly because of these secrets we've been talking about. So recovery, in its fullest sense, is about learning how to actually live within healthy community, healthy relationships, vibrant, thriving relationships. Because here's the thing we've discovered. When you have healthy, vibrant, thriving relationships in your life, you no longer have the need or the perceived need for whatever it was you were engaged in in your addiction because we were made for those relationships. When I learned 
how to have a healthy, intimate, vibrant relationship with my wife and with God and with my friends, the compulsivity, the, the draw, the lure of sexual temptation diminished significantly. Because, see, I was trying to find in all of those sexual outlets what really can only be found in healthy, authentic relationships. And everything in those sexual outlets, like I said before, it leaves you empty. It doesn't actually fulfill. It doesn't actually create those points of connection and, and being known and being loved. And so once you start to be known and be loved and have healthy relationships, you simply don't need the addictive behaviors. So we've got to, we've got to build a stronger and a larger framework for recovery than simply stop doing the behavior. That's like recovery 101. We want to get people to like recovery 401. You know, let's get to a place where you've really got healthy, strong relationships. Right now, as the final question, I, I, I would like you to look across the table at a, at a man who's sitting there. He's broken. He is, his life is, is in shambles. His marriage, uh, is in shambles. His, he's lost money because of his addiction. He's, he, he is just absolutely crushed under the weight of the decisions that he has been making for years and years and years. And now he's sitting across the table from you and he says to you, Jonathan, give me some hope. Mm -hmm. What would you say to him? First thing I'd say is, uh, tell me your story. You know, I feel like that's the first place where somebody can start to feel like, uh, there's actual care and concern is when we're, when we are willing to listen to someone's story, all of it. I mean, the brokenness, the mess, the wounds, the pain, the abuse, whatever, and give them that safety. We like to call those grace based environments, uh, an environment where your value and your worth is not contingent upon what you have done or what's been done to you but it's intrinsic because you are made in the image of God. And so that's not going to change. Whatever comes out of your mouth, whatever you need to share here is not going to have a, an impact on your value before God or before me. And so if that person can unpack that story, then we want to just say, let's, now that you've unpacked your story, let's try to find the next first best step for you to take. There's going to be a thousand steps on this journey. If you try to unload all of them onto a person at once, that's going to be overwhelming. Now, there can be, you know, I could give you 10 right now that could be good first, you know, next best steps. But the thing is, it really needs to be kind of, it needs to come out of their story. So in other words, rather than me trying to give a prescription here of saying, do this, 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 and this, I think it really is, it, it, it has to connect to that person personally. So while I mentioned before about groups being a value and counseling being a value and intensives, those are all good things, good programs, good environments. Um, sometimes the next best step for a person to take is um, they need to they need to go home. They need to cry. I mean, that may sound very weird, but it's like, have they just simply poured out their heart emotionally? Have they just allowed themselves to cry and grieve over not only what they've done, but what's been done to them and just cry? That might be their first, next, best step. Mm. And then from there, seek the other things like counseling and all that. I would say uh, as a way of just kind of helping a person understand a framework for this, we actually have put together a little, uh, we call it the first seven days 
And uh, first seven days for strugglers. This is for men or women who are struggling with lust or pornography. It's absolutely free. It's like a little daily email that comes for seven days. And all it is, is it's trying to help a person get a framework of what does it take to live this life of integrity? What does it take to, to change? And it's just got some main, some main principles in there to just help a person kind of unpack that because we don't want a person to have just a knee jerk reaction because, hey, they got caught or, you know, now their secrets out. And so then they're feeling like, oh, I've got to rush and do all these things. No, no. Take some time to understand we're asking you and we're inviting you to make a paradigm shift to completely shift the whole pattern of the way you live your life. And that's not a decision that you can just make on a whim. Well, thank you so much for all that you have been willing to share with us here. It's just a great book. I want to encourage whether you believe you have a, a sexual addiction or not. I want to encourage all of you men who might be listening to this to get a hold of Jonathan's book called Secrets. A True Story of Addiction, Infidelity, and Second Chances. We at Mark Inc. Ministries, we exist for the purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. And this is a part of the many resources we have that do just that. You can visit us at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. You can call us at toll-free 877-MARK-INC. Uh, or you can just give us a call and uh, let us know what we can do to help you. One of the things we would do is direct you to Be Broken Ministries. Uh, Jonathan, tell us how folks can establish contact with you. Sure, they can just go to BeBroken.com and we have all of our resources there. And that's really just the best way to reach us is at BeBroken.com. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been a real privilege to interview you and to be part of this. I want to encourage those of you who are listening to understand that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is where the real power of change takes place. For you to come to know and experience his love and his forgiveness, we would take you to the foot of the cross where you can find all of our sins wrapped up there in the brokenness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who took upon himself the sins of his people to bear the, the weight of Uh, our own sinful corruption, our own dirtiness, our own uh, plagued souls to give us life, to offer us eternal life, forgiveness for our sins, and the power of the Holy Spirit to change, to work that change from within. I want to encourage you, if you do not know Christ, that uh, you give us a call. We'll try to do everything we know how to do to teach you, to bring you to the point of of understanding the good news, the gospel of grace, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we are Marking Ministries. May God richly bless you, may encourage you, and may the love of Christ fill your heart every day. God bless, my friend.